Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh and joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, hockey's back and Trump's been impeached again. I'm great. <laughs> I'm not sure which of those is your priority, but okay. Um, <laughs> the events of, of a week ago, uh, Wednesday, have been described uh, in the Bill of Impeachment as an insurrection. They were described by... President-elect Joe Biden as an act of domestic terrorism. Uh, and we'd like to talk about sort of how this, these events, uh, the invasion of the Capitol, uh, and obviously the, the terminology here is important, how it sort of fits into this sort of long history of domestic terrorism and insurrection. Uh, but before we do on to do all that, uh, I think we should talk about, a bit about impeachment that happened uh, yesterday. Uh, Frank, what, what, what was your thought? You probably both watched the, the events as they unfolded on the, the floor of the House. What were your thoughts about impeachment? Uh, I mean, on one hand, you know, we talked about this um, in our last episode. It's not that surprising. I mean, I think that uh, the House, uh, particularly the leadership, signaled that they were going to go ahead with this, uh, particularly if, if Mike, Mike Pence did not uh, invoke the 25th Amendment in an attempt to remove President Trump that way. Uh, so it wasn't surprising. Um, I thought it was interesting that 10 members of the GOP voted in favor of impeachment this time, which didn't happen a year ago, uh, including Liz Cheney, which is, you know, I mean, she comes from, if you will, GOP aristocracy, or at least of one mm. branch of the GOP. It is interesting to reflect that there was a time when the, the Cheneys represented the kind of extreme right wing of the GOP, and now they don't. Yeah. Um, now so, they're so, being so, ostracized by the rest of the GOP. That's right. So, so I think that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I was, I mean, you and I had a brief discussion about this this morning in another context. I watched a debate with some um, disappointment, and my disappointment was as follows. The quality of the rhetoric and oratory, frankly, on both sides, but especially on the GOP side, mm. was so bad. Say what you will about those legislators during the 19th century, during your period, okay? They were, they were white supremacists. They were awful in all kinds of ways, but they understood oratory. Um, and, and in my guys didn't. I mean, in the, in the 18th century, it's not that important, but... You know, arguably with with the advent of democratic politics, and I mean with a small d, once you have mm. to reach the people, oratory is incredibly important, or at least it used to be. And I think that age is over. I mean, I think that was what was on evidence yesterday. You know, you got Jim Jordan whining about um, about cancel culture, and I cannot remember her name. The woman from the new one from Georgia, the QAnon Congresswoman uh, from Georgia, who had the censored mask on. Well, she said she was being censored. She had a mask saying she was being censored while she was speaking on the floor of the House of Representatives broadcast to millions of people. She wasn't being censored, but it was just really it was bad. I mean, what do you... I, I well, was th all I could think is these people are not very smart. No, well, I mean... The, the, the rules uh, of, of the debate, you know, I think that the Democrats were trying to impeach him yesterday, you know, and, and so they, they didn't want to have, you know, uh, long sustained speeches. And so they, you know, establishing the rules for the debate, I think, did that on purpose. Um, you know, even the Democrats only had 30 seconds to speak uh, in favor of, of the impeachment motion, which obviously doesn't give you a whole lot of room to, to say anything uh, significant. But I think you're right that the, the people who were defending the president, didn't do a particularly good job of defending the president. 
Um, they had a weak case, to be fair. They, I mean, no, be, tough, well, this is as as impeachment cases go. This one is, you know, thinking about this, comparing it to the other impeachments, comparing this to to you know Andrew Johnson's impeachment, comparing this to Bill Clinton's impeachment, comparing this, you know, obviously to the the first uh, Trump impeachment. This was was the the. the clearest and simplest case of of impeachment right the the the, uh inciting insurrection against congress uh is about as clear an impeachable offense as one could imagine um you know this is the kind of the hypothetical situation that you imagine like what would cause congress to impeach a president well the president sending people to go and attack congress is is about as impeachable as you get whereas the other cases are were uh you know, much more complicated, explaining the Tenure of Office Act and why that's problematic for Andrew Johnson to violate it. That's that's a whole sort of order of magnitude more complicated than, than, than what happened um, last Wednesday. So, um, well, I guess one of the things that did interest me in terms of the rhetoric, uh, or sorry, the debate, such as it was, was, of course, one of the things that we've learned in the past week, and basically the more that comes out, the more, you know, or the more we're learning, the worse we realize the events of mm. last Wednesday were. I mean, they seemed horrible as of last Thursday, but they seem an order of magnitude worse now. Yes, they is, do. And, but what we've learned is a number of members of the House and Senate, but the House in this context, um, were complicit in some of these activities. And so, so uh, they weren't just debating them, you know, the president, they were, you know, their statements might well reflect back on themselves as well. Mm. And so, so that could be a factor. And again, I was struck as usual, and, and this is something you and I discussed last week, um, the degree to which the revolution is invoked all the time. Now, actually they invoke the revolution more often in these contexts than the civil war, I think. Um, oh, no, they, they invoke everybody. But, but Lincoln, 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 Lincoln like, the second inaugural was like, I was like, okay, can we just have a you know a moratorium on the second inaugural? But 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 yeah, I mean, I, well, so the the historical invocations were interesting to me. Well, and the context, you know, it's just you know the decontextualizing the, for those of you who aren't familiar with the second inaugural, this is one in which Lincoln, after winning re-election, after you know more than a half a million Americans had died at that point, talks about healing and reconciliation, which is very important. But he says it in the context of him still having armies in the field, still, you know, waging a very serious war um, in which there were, there were consequences for secession. And, you know, here when, when Republicans were evoking it, they were saying like, look, we should just heal without actually addressing the, the core issue at all. Lincoln was addressing the core issue. He was sending the U S army to deal with the core issue. Um, and he was talking about after we defeat militarily the insurrection, then we will have healing. Um, and I think they were skipping straight to the healing part. The other thing, of course, is that Lincoln is assassinated shortly thereafter by a white supremacist and who was with other white supremacists tried Speaking to of take, acts of terrorism. Yeah, try, uh, was trying to take down the entire you know uh, executive branch. You know, there were there were there were uh, associates. Of John Wilkes Booth that were were sent after other members of, of members of Lincoln's cabinet. So, you know, uh, it, calling for healing uh, doesn't necessarily lead to healing. You know, John Wilkes Booth, who was at the second inaugural address, if you look at pictures of it, you can actually see him there, not that far from Lincoln. 
he didn't hear the call for healing and say, oh, right, we should heal now. He heard the call for healing and say, I need to kill this man now. And so I, I mean, the yeah, Lincoln was evoked more than a half dozen times. It drove me nuts. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Lincoln gets evoked for everything because he's everybody's favorite president. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe not yours, Frank, but but he's most people's favorite president. He, he's he's pretty unimpeachable yeah. uh, in in terms of most things. Obviously, he's got there there are people who are critical of him for a variety of things, especially his stance on Native Americans. Um, but yeah, in terms of rhetoric, his rhetoric was was superior to anything we heard from uh, Republicans last night. Yes, and let's not forget he was um, an autodidact. Yes. So uh, and so the 19th century. In fact, Lincoln's a good example of the point I was making earlier. 19th century is an age of great oratory mm. in way, and that was just the expectation for politics. Again, once you get some form of mass politics, it becomes essential. And I think now that we have different types of ways of communicating with mass media, it's less important. So it mm. may well be, for example, now, now, sorry, I haven't thought this through, but that won't shock our listeners, that the age <laughs> of great oratory or great presidential oratory, if, if we'll just use the presidency mm. as a way to measure it, extends from Lincoln to Obama, but it's over. I think we might be in a hiatus point. I mean, I think one of the things that's changed is the kind of modes of communication and the ways in which oratory is delivered. You know, Lincoln would give speeches that lasted for two hours and people Well, that's would it. Listen. Too long, didn't listen. I mean, that's going to be the response now. So. Well, and Lincoln um, was not a particularly attractive man. And he had a somewhat annoying voice from descriptions of it. Um, so I'm not actually quite sure he would translate well into 2021. He's, he's not, he wouldn't look good on camera and he wouldn't sound good, uh, you know, in the audio clip, um, even if the words were excellent, you know? And so I think we, we've cultivated a class of politicians today that are uh, good at conveying their message to their voters in the technology, the media of today. No, no, I understand that that's yeah, my so point though, but, yeah. but it doesn't, but that technology does not lend itself to long form exposition oh, to or be sure, oral right. exposition. That, that's my Yeah, point. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I think, and I think that's, that's unlikely uh, to change. We'll see what, what Biden's first inaugural. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. And yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure he'll be talking about this next week. Uh, and, and although Biden, by his own admission, is not a great order. I mean, Biden's no. okay. So I don't think we're, I mean, he's better than Trump, but, but I don't think we're going to have an age of mm. great rhetoric for the next four years. Yeah. I think that's unlikely. I, I don't know. Anyway, as, I, as someone who had a speech impediment as a child, I, I really yeah. admire Biden as a, as a, a speaker. I um, was not criticizing him. It was simply an observation. No, yes. I, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, that, that, that's not his, his strength necessarily. Yeah. Right. Anyway, okay. sorry. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's talk about, about domestic terrorism. Cause that's, that's, that is a label that's being applied to the events of, of a week ago, Wednesday. Uh, it's actually what uh, president like Biden called it. How does, how does the, insurrection invasion again we're still sort of wrestling with the language here how does that fit into the sort of long history of domestic terrorism well i would say you two domestic, things. Did, you, did you have domestic yeah. terrorism in the revolution frank sorry before we even get to that david i want to i i, I 
This is that classic student on an exam move when they haven't uh, done the reading, okay? Uh, let's unpack what we mean by both domestic and terrorism. I'm not mm. sure what, what domestic is doing for us there. I don't know why we can't just say terrorism in the United States. So uh, hang on. Uh, um, but I also think we need to d- define what we mean by terrorism. In answer to your question, and I'll get to that, I do think we have terrorism in the revolution. But I, I do think um, we need to pause on both of these words. I don't know mm. what domestic is doing for us. And I do think we have to decide before we go ahead what we mean for the purposes of this conversation by terrorism. So do you want to respond to both of those things? The the domestic thing, I think, is doing two things. One has to do, I think, with the sort of legal framework about how, how the federal government responds to terrorism that uh, if it's a a terrorism that's coming domestically, that's dealt by one set of law enforcement agencies. Uh, And if it's terrorism that's coming from a foreign source, that's dealt with a different set of law enforcement and military agencies. And so there is a legal separation between those kinds of terrorisms because they are dealt with differently. The FBI and, and, and various sort of similar domestic law enforcement agencies deal with domestic terrorism the CIA and a bunch of, of other agencies and the military deal with, with foreign terrorism. You know, you do respond to them differently. You know, after 9-11, the United States invaded a couple countries. Yeah, domestic, but... But domestic terrorism, like domestic terrorism, well, like we, we can't, in, I mean, we can't. But who knows what that, that's a very different framework. Um, so that's, yeah, I, I think... A, a, a practical reason why legally those are, those things are dealt with in, in, in U.S. code in, in, in different sections um, because of the sort of law enforcement bit. The other part, of course, is when people talk about domestic terrorism, they're usually talking about white people. And well, that's, that, yeah, that, they, in fact, that's part of my, my, my I mean, you're right in strict legal terms uh, in the same way we talk about domestic policy and foreign policy. OK, sure. I, that makes sense. I think saying domestic terrorism, though, and I'm not I, I want to make clear I'm not attributing mm-hmm. this to you. But in saying domestic terrorism, I don't think people are making that distinction, the one you've made, so much as it's almost premised on exceptionalist notions of America. The the implication being, and we're about to prove this wrong, Mm. the implication being we don't really have that much terrorism within the United States. And it draws a distinction between terrorism, real terrorism, which is international terrorism, whether it was in the 1970s, you know, Red, the bread brigades in Italy or whatever, or people hijacking planes in the 70s or in the 90s. And since then, it, you know, it's usually associated with Islamic terrorism, although not always in, in, in um, again, outside of the United States. Uh, I, I, I just I don't like the word domestic. I don't think it's very helpful. And I think it I think it perpetuates. Um, I, I think it perpetuates uh, the, the incorrect distinction. And when we talk about domestic terrorism, and again, I'm not attributing this to you. This is a more general statement. Mm. You're right. There's a racial dynamic to it. So they don't necessarily describe the shooters in San Bernardino a few years ago who were Muslim Americans, who were non-white Muslim Americans. They were just called terrorists. I don't remember domestic. I, mm, I, I, yeah. I could be wrong about that. And I don't want to, I'm not going to nail my colors to the mast on that. Or the Fort Hood shooter uh, in roughly the same time period, also Islamic, didn't call him a domestic terrorist. Domestic terrorism seem, or that adjective domestic seems to be reserved for white people. And the premise being, it doesn't happen very often. And I think both of those things are wrong. 
So that's that, that, yeah. I, no, I think. And that, I, I, I'm, I think again, right. I'm not blaming you for this. It's 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 widely in in circulation. But I think that's embedded within. You're right. That's embedded within the terminology. Yeah, but I think you know. I think the the. And people sort of tend to downplay it as a consequence, the the threat of it because of of, of that that nature. Um, but terrorism is yes. even more complicated. So, oh, to be sure, terrorism is a very I, slippery term. Yeah. Now, I, I I was in thinking about this podcast. I was thinking about a book you're probably familiar with, which was the anthology that the great historian Richard Hofstadter edited. Um, called American Violence with a man named Michael Wallace, I think it was. Yes, yes, that, that's um, a great, great volume. It is a great volume, and it's. I, and I think it's out of print, unfortunately. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got a copy of it in my office, but my office might as well be on the moon right now. Yeah, I can't get as, as, same as mine. <laughs> so, um, and it came out oh early seventies, I'm guessing. That sounds right. Yeah, um, but the interesting thing about that was is it was an anthology of American violence and the history of violence in the, in, in America, colonial and during the United States. And it's a very, very powerful collection of documents and primary sources. But what's extraordinary about it is the variety of, of <laughs> forms mm. of violence. I mean, if there's one thing Americans are good at, that it's violence. Um, and I don't know whether there's a chapter in that volume on terrorism. I bet there is. But I don't know. I, I honestly can't I just, recall. It, it remember, well, remember that there's, you know, a part of it, I think if we were to write that volume today, we'd probably describe many events in very different language than they would. That's right. And we and in fact, some things, I have a feeling we might have a more capacious definition mm. of what terrorism is than, than um, Hofstadter and Wallace did. But anyway, I did think about that volume in thinking about this episode. And so David, what do you think the elements of terrorism are? Let's leave the domestic aspect of it. So we're okay. talking about terrorism within the United States. We can take um, the I think it's of the United States or act, even the pre United Actions States. taken, uh, violence or threats of violence taken with a political objective intended to shape uh, behavior of, of, of individuals. Okay. Uh, threats of violence even. Yeah. I think if you burn a cross in somebody's front yard, Right, but that's an action. The, that's an action. Well, okay, but 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 it's but ultimately it's an action that is a threat of violence. It's not the actual. You, know, you don't actually have to lynch the person to make them change their behavior. The threat of violence then shapes not only the behavior of the person in whose house you put the burning cross, but pretty much everybody else who's similar to the person who's in the house. There's a message being sent. No, no, no I understand. I understand. Yeah. But but then are you suggesting that words? Written words are mm. terrorism. If they imply a threat of violence, yes, they can be. Um, again, I'm not defending. Yeah. I want to make clear. I'm not defending this kind of behavior. I'm just not sure it's I mean, there's terrorism. a First Amendment question there about sort of exactly where the freedom of speech you know, ends and where, where, where threats of violence begin. And there's, there's some you know, gray area there. I'm sure President Trump's defenders, when when they point to the things he said in the lead up to events of last Wednesday, where he says, you know, go to Congress and tell them we're serious and be strong with them and the various other things that Trump said. Um, you know, there's, there's both text and there's subtext embedded within that, um, you know. Uh, right, but the, in fact, that's my, so Alan Dershowitz, for example, who who's setting himself up 
along with Rudy Giuliani, there's a mm. team, uh, to, to defend Trump in the, in the impeachment trial. He appeared on uh, the Today program here in the UK a few days ago. He's been on US media basically making a First Amendment defense of Trump's uh, words. Mm. But, but even let, let's assume for the sake of argument, because I think this is important and I, I'm not sure we agree on this. Um, I think Trump instigated the violence last week. And I yes. think the result was a terrorist attack on Congress. I don't think we disagree on that. Hmm. I'm not sure his words, according to your definition, if I understand it correctly, amount to terrorism. I think his, his words amount to uh, incitement of violence, sedition, you know, pick, pick. But, but I'm not sure his word, but the terrorists are the people who carry out the act and the act, uh, there has to be an act. But, you know, but if we think about, you know, uh, Osama bin Laden, if we're going to do the, you know, go that line, you know, he wasn't in the planes. But he planned and executed, he planned the act and took, took steps to execute that plan, which but, is but, different but most from the actual. Saying, but most of the actual planning was not done by him. The actual sort of like, here are the planes we're going to, you know, his, his planning role in that, at least my understanding of it, was two or three steps removed uh, from a cave in Afghanistan or Pakistan, wherever he happened to be at various points in time, right? Um, he inspired the act through the, the words that he did and, and the organization that he was ahead of, um, which is not necessarily to compare President Trump to, to Osama bin Laden, but, um, you know, there's a, Trump's words, I think, are directly connected to the actions that were taken immediately thereafter. Yeah, I don't think words are enough. I mean, we, we can move on because we need to have this discussion, okay. but All I'm right. not sure, I'm not sure, and, and this is not, again, I want to make clear, I'm not in favor of threatening anybody, or, and I get that words you know, carry force, but, but I'm mm. not sure. I, I think that's, that might be too broad a definition of what constitutes terrorism. Oh, I, I think the, the American courts have embraced a very expansive definition of what terrorism is. Um, whether well, it's right yeah, but I'm, I, well, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean no, in the sense you're that, outside that, the jurisdiction of no, American I, courts. So right, uh, I, 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 I think, I think, I just think we're on a slippery slope unless there are, I, I think actions have to be involved. Now you can say the act of expressing those words, whether they be, whether it be orally or in writing or mm. on the internet is, is an act. I understand that, but I'm not, I, I, I think, I, I think that's actually a pretty dangerous definition. I think it's too, I think it's too broad and slippery. I think it's words, especially when it comes from a person of, of power and, and political authority that that imbues the words with uh, extra extra gravitas and and uh, and weight. Um, all right, so let's see if we can put this into some historical yeah. context. So the American Revolution, the 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 patriots of of the American Revolution, did they? How does terrorism fit into their worldview and their experience? Is, uh, there, any, is there any domestic terrorism in the revolution? Yes, I mean, well, well, interestingly, the word terrorism and terror comes from the French Revolution and used ah. in an entirely different context. So if you want to be a kind of literalist, no, because it, it's before that phrase was, was coined. But, but they also didn't have the word boycott. And they also right. had boycotts yeah, in the yeah, revolution. Yeah, right. Fine. Um, I think we need to draw a distinction. And this, again, gets to our definition. We didn't even we, we didn't get beyond words. Um, and, and the Hofstadter book 
yeah. I wanted to illustrate this between there are different forms of violence. There's lots of violence in American history. Not all of those violent acts are necessarily terrorism. So school shootings are a good example or mass mm. shootings. Some mass shootings are acts of terrorism. Some of them are not. But that's not to say they're not terrible. And we've talked about those in the past. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. if we go back to the revolution, for example, there's a lot of violence around the American Revolution. There is, during the War of Independence, there are atrocities committed. One of our former students, Robin McNiven, has written a very interesting dissertation on this, a PhD dissertation on atrocities during the revolution. So there are atrocities committed during the War of Independence. I don't think those are terrorism. Okay. What about tarian feathering? They did a lot of tarian feathering. Yes, feathering. sorry. That's, that was my... However, in the run-up to the revolution, I think there are acts of terrorism. I think if you were a British customs inspector or suspected British customs inspector who's beaten by a mob or stripped by a mob, ridden around on a rail, then covered with hot tar, which is actually quite a severe... Yeah, so so what exactly is being ridden about? What does that actually mean? I've heard ridden on a rail. What does that actually look like they, in practice? puts you on a rail like a fence rail okay and they carry you around and if you're okay. naked and you're male david okay so well, the like, naked part is, is the part that you left you. out i don't want to paint you a picture david <laughs> well i just you know because i think people people talk about this you know and, and it gets red but but like this is going to be tarring and feathering somebody and sort of the, all the, the whole uh, procedure this this is going to be sort of a debilitating event in someone's life Yes, this isn't I mean, just simply threatening them. This is no, no. In them. fact, to draw your to draw the kind of illustrate the distinction we were making before. Mm. So, if David Silkenat is a suspected customs officer, if he's a customs officer <laughs> in Boston in 1767, sure, forcing the towns and duties, or if he's a merchant suspected of violating the Patriot boycott, which is more equally common. unlikely, but okay, right. yes, yes, all right. And Frank Cogliano is the leader of the Sons of Liberty, and if yes. I throw if, if I post a notice on the Liberty Tree in Boston saying David Silconat needs to repudiate the towns and duties and sign this non-importation agreement, mm. that's not terrorism. Yes. If I lead the mob that goes to your house because you didn't do it, ride you around on a rail, beat you up, and then cover you with hot tar, which burns your skin and feathers that's terrorism. Now, and now that what happens if occur. you give a speech in the pub about my evil tax collecting, and then you told people, you should go down to David's house down the street from the pub and tell him what you think and do it strongly. Is that, would you be then? <laughs> you have to be strong in defense of liberty. Of, exactly, right? And, 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 and never let him forget that, that, that what you mean, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, again... Uh, and I suspect this is, uh, I, I think that is poor form. Uh. <laughs> I, I think it, it's probably illegal depending on the, the laws of the jurisdiction. I don't think it's terrorism. It's incitement okay. of terrorism. But the that, people who are the terrorists, that, that, if people do that, they are committing a terrorist act. I, I, because they okay. are committing violence against your person or a person to achieve a political end. So I think okay. your, by your standard, that is terrorism. But the people who are guilty of terrorism are the perpetrators of that act, not the idiot in the pub. Okay. All right. So Sam Adams gets off, but the people who are, okay, good. Yeah. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, the, the most famous protest for the American revolution, of course, is the Boston Tea Party. Now that's yeah. interesting because it's a crime against property 
They destroy 342 chests of tea, 10,000 pounds worth of tea owned mm. by the East India Company. It's a significant sum of money. I'm not sure that constitutes terrorism because it's violence against property. It's a protest. Um, would you count that as terrorism? Well, I mean, that's an interesting case, um, in part because of the name that, that Americans decided to give it long after the event itself, right? Calling it a tea party denudes it of its, of its violence in some ways, right? If I were a ship captain and I was thinking maybe I should bring my tea to Boston, again, not a very likely scenario, but okay, hypothetically, I'll say that's where I am. Would I be afraid of this? Would I be afraid of what the next step this mob is going to take after it dumps the tea in the harbor? We know the mob didn't take quite the next steps, but you can imagine the next steps where they're taking going to my house and burning it down. Um, so I don't know that that's it's it's a weird one whether I would classify that as terrorism, but it's it's clearly a, a you know we 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 have this tendency to with the revolution to 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 sugarcoat a lot of it to make it seem a lot less violent and a lot less destructive than than it was um and the the the, the whole sort of rhetoric around tea party d- does that um in a in, in a quite profound way but tea was destroyed or t- they certainly prevented tea from landing in new york and philadelphia sure. and charleston yeah yeah they didn't do the kind of i mean this is political theater at theater. one level too because it's about ginning up support for the cause and so to a certain yeah, yeah. extent this is an act of well, as I said, it's political theater um, mm. and, and it's propaganda in action, if you will. I, again, I don't yeah, think that I, I guess I don't terrorism. Think... It's illegal yeah. uh, and they broke the law and there were sanctions and they, they, uh, but they yeah. is okay. Here's a better one. So I've got two more examples from the revolution. I know we need to move on. Um, so in, in August of 1765, during the Stamp Act riot in Boston, which was one of the bigger riots during mm. the Stamp Act. And so this is perhaps more akin to what happened last week in that it was a crowd action as opposed to individuals, a small number of individuals sort of doing a secret and surprise act of violence that's intended to kill a lot of people. It's a crowd action that results yeah. in unforeseen consequences or possibly foreseen consequences. But so in the Stamp Act riots in, in August of 1765, the Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts, Thomas Hutchinson, his house is pretty much destroyed in Boston. His family is put to flight. Hutchinson kind of tries to, makes a kind of token defense of his house, but recognizes that he can't stop them. And the crowd wrecks his house. And, and they hang his body in effigy. Uh, yes. In effigy. Yeah. Is that lead terrorism? Up to that. Is that terrorism? Yeah, I think that is. Yeah, I think you're probably you're, right. You're trying right? to intimidate, you know, and change policy by by violence and threats of violence. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. Okay, Boston Massacre, in the run-up to the Boston Massacre, mm. the there are a number of fights in Boston at the end of February, beginning of March 1770. Uh, between Bostonians and British soldiers. They, uh, it's all happening on the mm. waterfront. They're, it's about work and mo- soldiers moonlighting, stuff like this. On the road and, all, and all Yeah, and there's yeah. a lot of bad blood between the, the soldiers and, and the civilians in Boston anyway. On the evening of March 5th, 1770, the crowd is throwing snowballs. Starts with relatively young boys, but we young boys throwing snowballs makes it sound, we're back to sugarcoating mm. things, makes it sound yeah. sort of, 
playful. It's not. So the sentry outside the customs house in Boston is being, is being assaulted. Uh, he calls for reinforcements. Eventually things get out of, you know, the thing spins out of control. The troops fire. I don't think the troops firing on the civilians is, is, is terrorism. No. Um, is the attack on the, on the sentry terrorism? No, because I don't, you know, the, the guy who's stationed outside the customs house, he's just a British soldier. He doesn't have a, a power and authority in and of himself. Um, I mean, I think that's another case where the sort of terminology that, that has been applied to things often sort of uh, confuses as much as the, uh, it illuminates. You know, we call it the Boston Tea Party, which seems like it's it's a lot less violent than it was. We call this the Boston Massacre, even though, you know, whether five people getting shot by a, a soldiers engaging in a police action, whether that's a massacre or not, is a, is a different... Um, well, eight are shot, five die. Five right. died in the violence last week. We have no doubt calling that terrorism. True. These are agents um, of the British state the seeking state. to impose the authority of Britain yeah. on civilians. Oh, to be uh, sure. Um, yeah, but, but I mean, I don't think it's I, I don't think terrorism helps in describing that part of this. No, is, yeah. We use these words in a way to try and ex explain yeah. what happened in the past. And I don't think that's helpful, but oh, to be sure. OK, uh, let's, I mean, sorry, we were speaking stuff yes, on the revolution for a while. Let's go forward to the 19th century. David. OK, uh, well, we have a, you know, thinking about terrorists. We've got a terrorist organization in the middle of the 19th century, and that is the Klan. And in fact, we actually have a federal grand jury, which describes the Klan as a terrorist organization in 1870. Um, you know, and we have federal legislation designed to, to suppress the terrorist organization and really in some ways kind of a war against the Klan uh, in the 1870s under, under President Grant. Um, you know, and the Klan, and it's important to sort of recognize that the Klan in American history has several different phases. This initial phase, you know, is different from the, the, the later clans in, in, in multiple important ways. But here they are engaging in, in acts of violence and threats of violence intending to intimidate an entire class of people, or actually a couple classes of people. They're trying to intimidate African-Americans. They're trying to intimidate uh, white Southerners who are sympathetic to the plight of African-Americans. They're trying to intimidate federal officials. They're trying to intimidate uh, white Northerners who come to the South um, for a variety of purposes. And they are um, on a variety of levels remarkably effective in terrorizing those populations, using violence and threats of violence to, to kill uh, Republicans, to kill African-American leaders, to burn churches, to burn schools. Um, and by consequence, you know, not only enact violence upon those individuals they target, but on a much larger communities of people who feel uh, threatened uh, by the Klan. Um, you know, you argue, David, that um, yeah. given that Republican rule after the Civil War is brought to an end by 1877 mm. and collapses across the South, that the Klan is the most successful terrorist movement in American history? <laughs> Well, I mean, so the, the, the thing about the Klan in the in the 19th century context is the Klan isn't really an organization. It, it's more of an idea. And in fact, there are lots of, of white paramilitary groups 
in the South in the 19th century. So there's the, the red the white, shirts. And... The, the, well, there's the red shirts. There's the Knights of the White Camilla. Uh, there's there's a whole variety, the White League, you know, and each there's a there's a, a militant white supremacy across the South that takes a variety of different forms. And the Klan, uh, you know, is one of them. Um, but it doesn't seem as if the Klan is a, you know, it's not a top down national organization. The Klan later becomes that in the 1920s and, and, and afterwards. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is a, a sort of decentralized uh, terrorist organization um, that shares a, kind, uh, a common sort of motivation and a common sort of iconography to some degree, although uh, the sort of standardized Klan robes that we, you know, that we think of when we think of Klan rallies, that actually comes from the 1920s. The Klan in the Reconstruction era actually wore all different kinds of things, um, including some things with horns, actually, believe it or not. There's a great, awful um, Klan robe in the North Carolina Museum of History uh, that's a black Klan robe, but it has horns attached to it. So... It's, and I, I hesitate to make this analogy, mm. uh, but but it might work in contemporary. It's a bit like Antifa then, and that it's a set of ideas um, rather than an organization. Uh, or, or it's a bit like Al-Qaeda, because Al-Qaeda, there are various branches of Al-Qaeda that are not affiliated with one another, that, the, right. the, that, that share a common ideology, uh, you know, and even if, yeah, I think that would be a better analogy. But it is, at least in, in, in the reconstruction form, um, not a, a top-down organization uh, the way it would later become. Let's um, take comfort from the fact that uh, the, the, the current members of the clan would hate being compared to either Antifa or Al-Qaeda. So uh, the analogy, <laughs> in terms of annoying them, the, the analogy works. Uh, I'm, I'm sure, I'm, hopefully they're not listening. Um, but sort of, you know, the Klan is this particular moment in 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 the, I say moment, it lasted for for years and years. Uh, but the, you know, the Klan, I think, is part of a, a broader spectrum of terrorism that's happening in the South to maintain white supremacy after the Civil War that lasts. Well, one could argue it hasn't really ended, but but you know, is in in a prominent form really throughout Reconstruction. After Reconstruction, uh, you know, well into the 20th, mid 20th century, uh, and probably the most visible form of this is lynching. You know, which is a form of terrorism that have you know we have between four and five thousand African Americans are lynched in the South between the end of Reconstruction and the and 1950. Um, people have tried to count how many people, and ultimately counting precisely how many people are lynched isn't that important. Because what what you know the effect that lynching has is not only to to kill and torture one individual or sometimes groups of people, but the effect that that has upon the broader community in terms of maintaining white supremacy, maintaining certain kinds of behaviors, and and inhibiting African Americans from um, deviating from the bounds set out for them by by the white majority. Yeah, I mean, certainly, if if tarring and feathering is terrorism, then lynching is genius. And one of the things that strikes me about lynching that seems relevant to the events of of a week ago is there were lots of times when lynchings took place in which people took photos of the lynching, 
lynching photos were a genre of, there are hundreds of these of, of sometimes very large crowds, sometimes small crowds, people having their picture taken with the mutilated body, smiling for the camera. I mean, these aren't sort of, can't, you know, uh, pictures where they don't you know, where they don't know they're being photographed. They they are posing for the camera with with in the process of of torturing and killing somebody and terrorizing an entire community. And they're able to do this because they know that there is no threat to them of legal san- sanction, right? That white Southerners knew that in the act of lynching somebody, they would be backed up by the court system, they backed up by politicians, politicians called for lynching, you know, probably the most famous is Rebecca Lattimore Felton, the uh, senator from Georgia, the first uh, woman senator from Georgia, uh, who, you know, called for lynching thousands of black men, you know, and, and so this was an accepted there's a reason why they're not wearing hoods because they don't need to wear hoods. The Klan had to wear hoods to disguise their identity. Lynchers didn't. And you most know, of the attackers last week were, you know, were not hiding their identities. No. Um, and in fact, not only were they not hiding their identities, they were taking pictures of themselves in the sharing act, them. you know, and then sharing them and saying and and being prideful of the actions they took, which is, you know, the, the, the actions in the Capitol last week and, and lynching are, are have a huge amount of differences, obviously, but 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 there's a, a similar sort of uh, brashness to both events. You know, the sense that, that, yes, they know they're committing a crime, and, but yes, they think they're going to get away with it. And I think a lot of them are being surprised now when they're getting arrested uh, because they thought, well, wait a second, why am I, I thought I, what I was doing was, you know, um, going to be tolerated by, by authorities because of my status in society. Now, much of what we, we've discussed, both mm. the stuff from the revolution and, and your discussion of, of lynching and, and white paramilitary violence after the Civil War, is kind of crowd action, which, while deliberate, is often quite spontaneous. Yet when you say terrorism to people, I think it, to, to, to lay people, um, what they... Th- Tend to th- what it conjures up are small conspiracies that commit notable, often quite dramatic acts of violence, which may have many, many casualties or maybe individual assassinations, for example. So I'm thinking, you know, so the more notable examples that I think people would think of if we said we're going to talk about terrorism in American history would be, you know, the assassinations of, of uh, Lincoln and Kennedy and McKinley mm. and, and so on, and, and uh, or the kind of events these set piece events, which we convince ourselves or many of us convince ourselves are rare in American history, like the Haymarket bombing in 1886 mm. or the bombing of the, the federal building in Oklahoma, the, the, in Oklahoma city in 1995. Mm. Um, but so how do we marry up these two kind of tracks of terrorism? I think the one we've spent a lot of time talking about yeah. is terrorism and it's helpful to think of it in those terms, but that's actually, I think, not what people necessarily yeah. think of when they think of terrorism. Well, assassinations, I think, are their own particular yeah, sure. Genre. weird thing. <laughs> of, of, you know, it, it's... I'm not sure how helpful it is to talk about assassinations, particularly, in this, you know, given the, the specifics, especially some of the assassinations. Uh, but I think there is a through line from the violence of, of, of lynching 
two events like Timothy McVeigh's uh, bombing of, of, of the Oklahoma City uh, Federal Building, uh, two events of, of last Wednesday. Um, I think there is a, a thread of white supremacist violence that, that connects all of those in, in, in both ideological ways, but also in terms of um, the, the kind of status, the, the relationship to, to established political power and, and relationship to, to, to the federal government, right? Um, white Southerners saw, most white Southerners saw lynching as entirely legitimate. They saw any action by the federal government to intervene as illegitimate. Timothy McVeigh targeted a federal building because he saw federal authority as being illegitimate and he wanted to start a, a, a race war, you know? And if you think of the, the intrusion of, of people into the Capitol uh, last Wednesday, you know, they felt a, a, a attacking this sort of symbol of American uh, democracy and, and of, of, of power as, as a legitimate uh, exercise on their part and they saw themselves uh, at least some of them did is, is as part of that tradition yeah although david it's fair you know in fairness we need to take note of the history of left-wing terrorism in the united states which is actually pretty long as well hmm. uh and so you know whether it's the, the 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 kind of anarchists of the late 19th and early 20th century whether it's you know from haymarket down to the haymarket down to the period uh, right after the First World War, as well as in the 1970s, there was a mm. spate, the Students for a Democratic Society. You know, there, there was a, there was a, there is a history of left-wing terrorism. Oh, in the to United be sure, State, right. Which, which, well, so, so you, your theory of everything works to a point, but it doesn't. Well, you know, I think, I think you're right. And what, all of that. That, that there is a tradition of, of left-wing terrorism as well. Um, although, you know, one of the things that, that, enraged me among the many things that enraged me last night in watching the impeachment hearings is Republicans saying, well, okay, Trump caused a riot and caused an invasion of the Capitol, but there were Black Lives Matter protests over the summer. So everyone's conducting, we all agree violence is wrong and we should just put it behind us. And that sort of equivalency seemed to me to be a, 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 a false equivalency and a, um, an offensive one. Um, well, I, yeah, but I, I, I think one was a terrorist attack, the, the Black Lives Matter protest last summer, I, I, which I did not cite as an example of left-wing terrorism. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I don't think those are but, left-wing but, terrorism. But, but, but although, you know, I think there's lots of Republican congressmen who, who would. Um, you know, thinking about uh, bombing the, the, the Capitol uh, or attacking the Capitol, I mean, one of the left-wing groups that did that was, was the Weather Underground, who actually did place a bomb in the U.S. Capitol. Not a very big one. I think they blew out some windows um, and they didn't kill anybody. I think one of the, the symbolic uses of violence you saw there was, was they actually called ahead most of the time and told people where the bomb was and why they were placing it. Um, but I think you're right. There is a, a, a sense of, of, you know, there is a, a, a left-wing tradition of, 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 of terrorism. I mean, terrorism as a tool, if we're going to sort of strip of, of its uh, moral valence, you know, is a, is a tool that is used uh, by people who feel like the other tools of power are not at their disposal. Um, 
whether that's true or not is, is, is I don't know. But but you know when we think about whether it's anarchists in the 19th century or whether we're, whether we're thinking about the the Wall Street bombing in 1920, you know it's very often um, people who are trying to use violence to achieve political ends that they can't achieve by traditional political means, or at least they think they can't by traditional political means. Yes, although the lynchings you describe, and I think mm. you know those are acts of political violence are often, by your own description, mm. perpetrated by local majorities, often which have power and are trying to oh, hold to sure. the status quo. I mean, I mean, lynchings don't seem to fit that model. No, that, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Um, you know, the other sort of thread of, of domestic terrorism we've seen a lot of in recent history and I'm, I'm curious what you think about how this fits, is anti-abortion violence, of which there's been a tremendous amount in the past 25 yep. years. Yes, with uh, the, the Olympic uh, uh, Park bombings in 1996, the murders of, of, of George Tiller in 2009, the attack on Planned Parenthood in 2015, uh, that seems to be a, another sort of very strong tradition of... of uh, domestic terrorism, and one that does seem to have some connections with um, events last Wednesday in terms of, of both ideology and in terms of organizational uh, connections. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I, I would agree with you. I, I don't know what I can, how I can respond yeah. beyond that except to say, yes, I mean, I, but I think that, again, I think, there's a, I think there's a distinction to be drawn. I think anti-abortion terrorism hmm. those acts fit the more conventional model of a sort of small group of people perpetuating acts of violence to make a political statement or to yeah. stop activity as opposed to a mob action yeah um so well, i think that so, so i think they they're they're more in the tradition of the Wall Street bombing sure, than they are sure. of the of the storming of the Capitol, although well, they have more in common with the people who stormed the Capitol, I think. Yeah. I mean, well, one thing that strikes me, I think we're going to people are going to learn more about this as, as details about the storming of the Capitol unfold. There seem to be multiple events happening simultaneously. Yeah, that's right. In, in, in the Capitol, there seem to be some people who are engaging in, in invading the Capitol, like who have a who have made a plan. We've seen their videos out online about people that they've recorded making a plan for invading the Capitol where they've mapped out where they want to go. They've come prepared with um, plastic handcuffs and they've come prepared with, with tactical gear. There's also the people who just seem to have sort of, I don't want to say wandered into the Capitol because that, 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 that seems uh like I'm laying them off too lightly, but but seem to have been swept up in events, um, and and don't seem to be engaged in the kinds of of terrorist uh, violence that that some of them were. Uh, that just seem to be sort of uh, participant observers, if you will. Yeah, David, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think I think a lot of stuff was going on last Wednesday. So uh, to to kind of wrap this conversation up, mm. some people turned up for the Boston Tea Party to in my interpretation of that event, while others were intent to cause physical harm either uh, and, and real destruction. So mm. others were turning up for, you know, a tarring and feathering to go back to the revolution, the, the sure. kind of distinction I drew at the beginning. But um, anyway. 
Well, so, so what is what can we do about domestic terrorism? Because it seems as if if events on last Wednesday are any indication, and events of you know the past twenty five years, if we're going all the way back to the the Oklahoma City bombing, you know the the threat of white supremacist uh, domestic terrorism, if those are the terminologies we're using, seems to be quite profound and obviously the FBI and other groups are doing all kinds of things. what what can the United States do in the near future and in the more just in the more long term to, to deal with it I think it's a law enforcement problem first and foremost and ideally we want to change the culture and you know mm. those 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 Republicans who are appealing to to uh, Lincoln sentiments in the second inaugural they're not wrong in the sense that we need to somehow come together and put put some of this behind us but I think where there are acts of violence being perpetrated, by some citizens against other citizens. I, I, I take white supremacy out of it. This mm. is this is where there are acts of violence. These kinds of political acts of violence being perpetrated. They have to be treated as a law enforcement problem, and, and we have to give law enforcement the authority uh, to, to to do this. And to go back to your example of the Klan, that's what happened with the Klan when the first mm. Klan was suppressed. It took the authority of the United States government, and it took a lot of coercive authority from the United States government to do that, but it can be done. That's, I think that's the only answer, really. But yeah. we also need to take steps to rebuild civic culture as well. And I think, I think that's, we'll talk about Biden's inauguration next week, mm. I'm sure, but I think one of the challenges that Biden, President Biden will face is trying to achieve that. I actually think he's well suited by both temperament and personal experience. He's a very empathetic person to try and do that, but it's gonna be a hell of a job. All right. I guess it's time for last drops, Frank. What you got? Well, I want to once again, I realize this is the third, this is the third time in a row, Frank. Okay. But I want to endorse the Fennel Forum, which is next Wednesday, right after the inauguration, 8 p.m. UK time, 3 p.m. in the U.S., uh, east coast of the U.S. Uh, we've, got, we've got Laura Belmonte, Joanne Freeman, Patrick Griffin in conversation with Alan Little about the events of recent weeks and months and looking forward to the uh, Biden presidency reflecting on the inauguration. There's now a link available. You have to register to attend this event. Please do so, but please do so soon because we're, we're, we're bumping up against uh, uh, the limit of the number of people we can admit, although we're hoping to raise that limit. But please, uh, please do so. So you can find the great. link on the show. And we've page. got the, the link in, in the show notes. We've got this great cast of, of historians who are going to come in and, and, and journalists to, to talk to us about the, the, this. Uh, and hopefully well, they'll have lots of wisdom we don't have. Yeah, indeed. And, <laughs> and, and there, there may be a... Uh, Joanne Friedman has a, a bird that is, she's quite fond of, and the bird often makes her appear, media appearances with her. So we yes. may have a, a bird cameo uh, as well. So if you're a bird, that's lover, right. Uh, <laughs> that might make make, a, make an appearance. As well. David, what's your last drop? I'm going to wrap this up. I have a yes. class in five minutes. Five minutes. Okay. Well, I was just really uh, moved by the photos that came out uh, over the past couple of days of National Guardsmen inside the U.S. Capitol, because I think the juxtaposition, I mean, in some ways it's a very tragic image of, of, of Guardsmen sort of sleeping on the floor um, of the rotunda and, and of other uh, hall, the, the halls of Congress. But it, it evoked for me, I think, you know, the, the lots of images from the Civil War in which they also had soldiers stationed in the, in the Capitol building. And so I just want to, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to some of these images, um, including an image that has, um, uh, there was a plaque to the soldiers who were stationed in the Capitol and soldiers uh, who are now stationed in the Capitol. Uh, and it's a great image also of soldiers posing next to a statue uh, of Rosa Parks. 
um, which is one of the sort of more recent additions to the statuary in the Capitol building. So I want to recommend all that. Yep. Right, until yeah. next week, Frank. All cheers. right, David. Cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.